back doors, Miss Bethany will be right there with Miss Grace as well. And then you'll kind of see them flowing that way. You guys can be dismissed out there. And they will have a, actually, I'm actually a little bit jealous. They've got a video lesson. They've got some songs. They, well, we had songs too, but um, they have, uh, they're going to hear the message at their age level. And I'm really excited for that for them. So and I'm excited to hear how it goes. So I'm sure I'll find out over lunch how it went. So anyway, uh, that is something I'm really, and I am really excited that we have that to offer now. So um, Well, hey, good morning again. Welcome again. It is so good to have you with us. It's good to be with you. Um, It's always a joy as well as a privilege to open the Word of God together. Now, today is the Sunday, and Dana mentioned it earlier, but it's a Sunday traditionally referred to in church history as Palm Sunday, in which we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem before his crucifixion and resurrection. We're actually going to look at that account of that, the account of that event from the book of John. So if you've got your Bible or your device to look up scripture on, go ahead and open to John chapter 12 and just kind of stick your thumb there. That's where we're going to be camped out today. You know, as you read through the gospel of John, and I remember years ago, I preached through the whole gospel of John, which took me like a year and a half to get through the whole thing, uh, a year and a half of sermons. And I probably went a lot faster than some guys would, um, But as you get to chapter 12, specifically verse 12 of chapter 12, so as you get to John 12, 12, there's a corner that's turned where everything moving forward in this gospel account puts us on a trajectory towards the cross. And it's this methodical march that John takes us down, marching towards the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the next week in the life of our church sort of mirrors this, doesn't it? We start with Palm Sunday today, and then we move forward onto Good Friday, where we commemorate and remember the crucifixion, culminating on Easter Sunday next week when we celebrate the empty tomb. So at this time, as Jesus is uh, preparing to enter Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is filling with people to celebrate the Passover festival. And I don't know the exact number of people, but from what I've seen, some, some of the figures I saw, I saw high figures in the twos, two million, two and a half million people, and I saw low figures in 500,000 people. We're going to take a low figure and say there's a prob- probably close to 500,000 people gathering in this little city of Jerusalem. Now, those, don't hold me to those numbers. That's, you may read in your research something different because uh, none of us were there. Okay, um, but but and I don't think the number is important. But needless to say, the city is filling up with people coming to celebrate the Passover. Now, Jesus would have been a hot topic of conversation around the city. You see, the religious leaders basically had put a warrant out for his arrest. Um, they were not happy with him, and they wanted to get him. Okay, news had spread from Bethany, which is. Just point of fact, this doesn't matter to anybody, but Bethany is my favorite city in the Bible. Um, But anyway, (laughs) you get that? I'm just kidding. Actually, it's the New Jerusalem is my favorite city. I know that's the pastor answer, right? Um, No, but uh, so news had spread from Bethany that Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And he was becoming famous for the miraculous So here we have Jesus approaching Jerusalem under all these circumstances, and we can see how the the environment was a little explosive, right? 
It was a little explosive. So with that in mind, let's begin to read. And we're going to read a good chunk here, okay? We're going to read from John 12, verse 12 through verse 36. And that is, I understand, a big chunk. But it's important because I want to make sure we have context for what we're going to be talking about. So let's begin. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it to our lives. Lord God, as we come before you, we need your help. We need you to make us understand your word. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Help us to take you at your word and to trust you. No matter what the world looks like around us, help us to trust what is in your word as your revelation to us, Jesus. God, I pray this morning that if there's anything that's just of me, that you would clear it out and that you would be clear 
with the hearts of your people. I pray that you would increase, that I would decrease, that you'd be big here, Jesus. This is about you. This is for you. It's not about me. It's not about anybody else, but it's about you and it's for you, Jesus. Be big and help us see you clearly. In Jesus' name I pray. Now, before we get too far into this, I want to give you a little bit of context as to what we're going to see today and kind of lay out a little bit of a roadmap of of what I'm going to try to do this morning. So a crowd was there with Jesus. You probably got that from in the reading where it talked about a crowd being there with Jesus, right? You probably caught that part. But there was a crowd that was with Jesus because they'd heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead, and that kind of makes sense to us, right? I mean, if you hear about a man with that kind of power, even today, right, even today in our advanced civilization, right, if you hear about a guy who has that kind of power, you're probably going to want to catch a glimpse of him if you can. If you've never heard of anything like this, you've never experienced anything like this, which they hadn't, right, and they heard about a guy who could take somebody who was dead and say some words, and that dead guy came a-walking, okay? So there's this crowd that wants to gather around and catch a glimpse of Jesus. We'd also read that there were some Greeks among them who've gone up to worship at the festival, and that's important for later. But who had the people come out to see? Well, they'd come to see a man who could perform, in their minds, amazing and mighty miracles. They came to see something fantastic. And it kind of reminds me of that scene from the movie The Incredibles. Now, I don't know if you've seen this, but I have children of the right age, okay? And there's this animated movie called The Incredibles about a family of superheroes. And it reminds me of a scene where Mr. Incredible gets home and he gets out of his car and he's just upset with his life and he... He damages his car, he can't get the door shut, and he gets mad, and he lifts the car up over his head like he's going to smash it, and there's this little kid sitting there on a big wheel trike, uh, just staring at him, you know, with a bubble of bubble gum, and it pops, and uh, Mr. Incredible looks at the kid and says, well, what are you waiting for? And the little kid replies, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. See, they wanted to see something amazing. They wanted to see something fantastical. They were looking for a show. And the Jews, and that's important because it's important to, to, to recognize why they were coming to see Jesus. The Jews were looking for a coming Messiah who would be a political ruler. They were looking for someone who would come over, this Messiah that was promised in Scripture. They were looking for a guy who would ride in to town and would overthrow the Romans and establish a kingdom for the Jews. And they were thinking a political kingdom, a physical kingdom. And they would be, in that case, superior. What they were expecting, though, and what they actually got were two different Things And they did not fully understand what the coming of Jesus was all about. Now, in the first section of the sermon this morning, what we're going to do is I'm going to walk through the different passage beats a little bit. Then we're going to look at this King Jesus as a different kind of king with a different kind of victory, a different kind of focus, and a different kind of kingdom. And then lastly, we're going to look at and ask how this truth changes 
how it changes the way we live. So if you are ready to ride that roller coaster, buckle up. The first thing we see is the reception of this king. The reception that he gets when he arrives in town. We see that in verses 12 through 19. That this is a different kind of arrival for a king. This is a different kind of arrival for a king. He arrives on a donkey. Okay? It was really hard for me not to say that in Shrek's voice. Okay? On a donkey. He arrives on a donkey. All right? There's no soldiers. There's no war horse. When a conquering king would ride into town on his war horse with his steed and his soldiers, and there's this Roman victory parade that happens, but here we have Jesus coming on a donkey with no soldiers, no war horse, but this is to fulfill a prophecy. There's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, about it's the promise of a king who was coming, okay, this promise of Messiah. And it it says this in those verses in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. There's exclamation marks there. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This says a lot about the kind of king that was coming. He's a different kind of king, different than your average political ruler. He was humble. According to the prophecy, speaking peace to the nations. This is not what they were expecting. And that's important to remember because a lot of times, and I don't want to like steal all my thunder from towards the end, but a lot of times we're expecting a certain Jesus and it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so they were expecting a certain Messiah, but it was different than what they got. I wanted to bring up this prophecy because it shows something. Just the fact that he was riding on a donkey. This shows us that even the smaller, the more minute of the prophetic details about the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that is strong proof of Jesus' claims about himself. We see these prophecies that are fulfilled in him over and over, over 300 of them fulfilled. And, the, and there's, I mean, there's apologists that'll tell you, well, the chances of that are like putting all the pieces for a Rolex in a bag and then blindfolding yourself and sticking your hands in the bag. And I mean, if you can't see it, I don't know why you're blindfolded. But anyway, and then putting it together and coming out with a Rolex, you know, or whatever. They'll, they've got some kind of illustration for that. The point is that even, even these kind of smaller seeming prophecies about Christ are proven true in his life. So we see a different kind of arrival. Then we see the cries of the people, what the people are crying. See, the things the crowd says about Jesus, they're biblical and they're accurate, right? They quote Psalm 118, 25, and 26. Now, before I read that, let me let you know that they cry Hosanna, which means basically, save us now. Save us now. Save us, Lord. Their cries of Hosanna, save us now. Psalm 118, 25 through 26 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. 
O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. One scholar that I was reading as I studied uh, said this verse is like, this is like the fight song for Jewish Independence Party, right? For the Jewish Independence Party. It's like their fight song. They apply the verse to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're applying that to Jesus, saying, hey, this guy's coming in the name of the Lord. They understand who he is, but they're under, that, that he's coming in the name of the Lord. They understand that, but their understanding of his kingship is too narrow. They're understanding his kingship as what they think of, of a king, the guy on the throne in the palace, right? The guy that commands the army. And their view of him as king is his kingship is just too narrow. What they want from a king and the actual purpose of Jesus were very far apart, right? Sometimes, I mentioned this earlier, sometimes what we want from Jesus is not in line with the purpose of Jesus. And we would do well to remember what Jesus is truly about and what his purpose is and was and what his followers are supposed to be about as well. Because he does save. The salvation he brings, though, comes through meekness, not through political triumph or battle, but actually through meekness and death. His victory comes through his death and resurrection. But they saw victory as, hey, hail the conquering hero, right? And the guy comes in and takes over. Like when we look at the guy in the football game where his team just gets uh, absolutely crushed, right? We don't look at that guy and go, that guy, that's the winner. That's the victor, right? What was the kicker, um, um, Captain Doink for the Bears, uh, Cody Parkey, right? That was his name. They kept hitting the, like, we didn't look at him when, when those of you who are Bears fans, I'm not, but you guys, some of you are, you didn't look at him and go, that guy right there, that guy's, that guy's the hero right there. You didn't, you didn't look at that. Because what we see as victory is different. That's the subversive nature of the gospel. His disciples, we read, though, didn't understand this yet. Oh, and and by the way, just so you know, Jesus still isn't, like, the purpose of Jesus still isn't all about political victory. I just feel like somebody needs to hear me say that this morning. Okay? Okay. Jesus' disciples did not understand these things yet. It says right there. But later, after Jesus is glorified, they think back on it, and like light bulbs go off in their hearts, right? And they get it. See, I think sometimes we, we give the disciples a hard time, and I do, like, especially like Peter, some of the things he pulls, right? And we give them a hard time, and we look at them. But we've got to remember, this is the first time any of this has happened to them. And if we put ourselves in that same spot, we likely would react in similar ways, right? Because we have a sin nature as well, just like they did, right? We give them a hard time a lot of times, but we have the benefit of, we have the entirety of Scripture, okay? They had the Old Testament, which... Uh, we, had, we had the Old Testament, which, by the way, is what Jesus used to preach the gospel. So that's enough for them to have understood. They didn't understand. Um, 
but but we can look back like we have an account of this they didn't have an account of their own story while they were living it right and so we give them a hard time and we look back but we have to remember what's going on in our own hearts sometimes we don't understand these things yet either and then we look back they looked back and understood them So the religious leaders, the Pharisees, as I mentioned earlier, they basically put out an arrest warrant for Jesus. They were ready to bring him in, right? They wanted to get rid of him, but they had some trouble with that as we read here. Because they said the whole world has gone after him. Now, the Pharisees realized Jesus was really popular and that he was gaining this reputation. And they looked at the people who were welcoming him, the crowds, And they're, you know, they're a little cowardly, right? They're scared of the crowds. And they make the comment that the whole world has gone after him. This comment, though, comes directly right before we discover that there were some Greeks, okay? These would be Greeks, would be Gentiles, okay? They would be probably proselytes. That means they were uh, converted to the Jewish religion, but they were not Jews themselves uh, um, ethnically, right? And so we have some some Greeks, and we find this out right before this, the, the Pharisees are like, yeah, the whole world's gone after him. And then we find, oh yeah, there's some Greeks who are here. And they're here to worship at the festival as well. And they approached to try to see Jesus. And depending on your translation, you probably see something there that they said, such as, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Or we, we, we want to see Jesus. We'd like to see Jesus. Whatever, however your translation says it. They were asking to see Jesus. And I love, I actually love that part because it just says, uh, it's like a game of telephone. So these came to Philip who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Like, it's like that. I think it's important to realize a couple of things. Number one, this is the third time that we see Andrew taking someone to Jesus. It's the third time we see Andrew taking somebody to Jesus. And we can learn a lot about evangelism from Andrew, right? We look at Andrew and somebody comes to Andrew and they need Jesus. They want to see Jesus. Andrew takes them straight to Jesus. Like, we can learn a lot from that. Because a lot of times... Somebody needs Jesus in our lives and we're like, oh, let me introduce you to my pastor. Or let me introduce you to, or why don't you come to my church? And those are not bad things. I'm happy to meet people and I would love for people to come to our church. But they want to see Jesus, so instead, just show them Jesus. If you know Christ, you can tell them about how they can know Christ. We learned so much about evangelism from Andrew. So what do we find in this, though? Well, well, the Greeks, as, as Gentiles, as non-Jews, we understand that, that and we re- read this earlier, but, but that Jesus doesn't come to destroy, but to bring peace to the nations. And it helps us understand a lot of things that we start to see later in the book of Acts, after Jesus is ascended, right? We find that God's plan, actually, we find this in, even in the Great Commission that Jesus gave before his ascension, Right? That God's plan has always been for the nations. God's plan has always been for the nations. The Messiah, 
the king of all was never just a king for Israel. Was he a king of Israel? Yes, but he was never just a king for Israel. Jesus is for the nations. The gospel is for the nations. In the book of Acts, we see the gospel spreading to Jews and Gentiles, bringing them into a new, unique community of faith, the church. God's plan has always been for the nations. God sent Jesus to be a light for men, for all men, to call both the Jew and the Gentile to saving faith through his finished work on the cross. This, friends, should fuel our passion for global missions. Okay? Just because, so Jesus didn't just come to die for the Jews. He also didn't just come to die for America. Okay? And, and it's really easy for us to get so focused and caught up in what's going on that we forget about a lot of really dark places that have never heard the name of Jesus. And it should fuel our passion for global missions, to pray, to give, for some to go. Because there are people who wish to see Jesus. They don't always show up at our front door like these, these guys, like the, the Greeks show up, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That doesn't always happen. And in the Great Commission, we find we have to go and take the gospel. Uh, so that's kind of a, just kind of going down some of the beats of the, of the happenings here. But I want to look at specifically for the rest of our time how Jesus is a different kind of king with a different kind of victory and focus and kingdom. First, this different kind of king won a different kind of victory. He was winning a different kind of victory. See this in 20 through 36. This is a victory by humility, a victory through death. This is different than, and I said this earlier, but it's different than every other political leader. There's a guy named Charles Ross Weed, and he wrote a, a poem that contrasted Jesus and Alexander the Great. And it goes like this. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever, Lord of Lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. One won all... One won... That's O-N-E-W-O-N. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. See, to the world, Jesus hanging on a cross, dying, looks like defeat. Just like I said with that sports illustration earlier. The Jews knew that cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Yet it was through suffering and death that Jesus won the final victory. He gave his life as a substitute for you and for me. He took the full bore wrath of God that I deserve, that you deserve on the cross in my place, in your place. And he rose three days later, which proved the ultimate victory 
over death and the grave and proving that God had accepted that sacrifice as enough, as sufficient for all our sin. Victory through, through death is something the world knows nothing of. They don't understand it, and it goes again to that subversive nature of the gospel. That the world did not understand, the disciples didn't understand, because you see even Peter try to stop it, right? He, he tries to stop the very thing that saves his eternity. He tried to stop it because the world knows nothing of victory through suffering and death. So he's a different kind of king with a different kind of victory. And then he's a different kind of king with a different kind of focus. Jesus' focus was on bringing glory to the Father. Richard D. Phillips writes this, glorying. Glorying always involves revealing or displaying. We glorify someone's artwork by displaying it prominently. So what displays the true glory of the Son of Man? Jesus' answer is his crucifixion. His self-sacrifice in making atonement for sin. Listen to this. All questions about the purpose, character, and glory of God were about to receive their answer. Not only was Daniel's vision to receive its clearest explanation... But the whole Old Testament would be explained and fulfilled when Jesus took up the cross. What the world sees as the deepest humiliation, Jesus understood as his highest glory. As he put it on the night of his arrest, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The focus of a life following Jesus is opposite the focus of the world. This king, Jesus, lived for the glory of someone else. He lived for the glory of the Father. This is the difference between empty religion and genuine Christianity. Living for the purposes and the glory of the Father. Jesus glorifies God, especially in the cross. Jesus is glorified in the cross most visibly. And God's love for sinners and his justice were reconciled at the cross. The clearest distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian, between a believer and an unbeliever, the clearest distinction is their views, respectively, of the cross. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Christ's death is his glory and it ought also to be ours. To spiritualize the Christ of God, what to spiritual eyes, the Christ of God was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary. A glory never equaled, shone around the conqueror of death and hell when he bowed his head and said, it is finished. Christ had a different kind of victory than what the world was expecting and a different kind of focus. And friends, if we're going to follow Jesus, our focus has to be different than the world's focus. The world wants wealth and success. The world uh, wants revenge on enemies. The world wants to be right and be comfortable and not have to give or sacrifice. And our focus has to be different. Third, he's a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. Not a political or a worldly kingdom. An already but not yet kingdom. A subversive kingdom. A kingdom that goes opposite of what the world would expect. The way of Jesus 
as it has been called, I prefer to say the way is Jesus. Because see what people, and I've, I've, I've read people that have said this or heard people say, well, I follow Christ's teachings. I walk the way of Jesus. But the problem is just doing those things isn't enough. That's trying to be good enough to earn salvation. The way, it's not the way of Jesus. The way is Jesus. He is the way. Who calls every disciple to follow the example that he set. But Jesus is not simply an example to follow. You can't boil him down to that. Uh, John Piper was helpful with an explanation here. He says, here, the destination is eternal life. And you can miss it by loving your life. That is, by making your goal in life to be safe and secure and comfortable and surrounded only by pleasant things. That is the pathway to perishing. Or, Jesus says, you can take another path and arrive at eternal life. That path is called hating your life in this world. Notice that he adds, in this world, as he's commenting on this passage, hating your life in this world means that you will choose to do things that look foolish to the world. You will deny yourself things and take risks and embrace the path of suffering for the sake of love. This, Jesus says, will lead to eternal life, not death. Because here's the thing, this different kind of king with a different kind of victory and a different kind of focus and a different kind of kingdom requires us to lead a different kind of life. We have to lead a different kind of life than the world. If we say we follow Jesus, the Bible says, God's word says, God's command says that those who follow Jesus must live as he did. That the result of trusting in Christ and knowing that our sins are paid for on the cross once and for all, that the result, the outflow in our life of that is a life transformed into living, following Christ's example, following God's teachings. So how does this change the way we live? Well, I'm going to, at this time, I'm actually going to invite the musicians to come up. Um, and in a minute, we're going to close, but I want to get them up here first because I still got more to say, but, um, you know, like to give them time to get to the front. But um, so how does this change the way we live? I think we have to ask and answer some questions. Number one is, will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? See, there have been some people in recent history who've actually suggested They've suggested that a person um, can have Jesus as Savior without receiving him as Lord. And this idea has been perpetuated by so many churches over the years. This idea has been taught that, that someone can believe in Jesus and yet not see any life change and never really turn away from sin even a little, and that they can still be assured of eternity in heaven. And the problem with this is that it flies in the face of the Bible. That is not the teaching of Jesus. Christians must die to self. When we follow Christ, we die to ourselves. He says it. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will 
honor him. The call of the Christian is, is some of you saw the Gospel Project movie that we showed. Um, not the Gospel Project, sorry, the American Gospel movie. Um, it said the call of Christ is a call to die. Christians must die to self. We die to our own wants and desires. We die to our own plans and our own ways and instead live for Christ's desires, for his ways. A follower of Christ must die to self and a follower of Christ must die to sin. We must die to sin. Jesus tells them that anyone who serves him must follow him. That anyone who serves him must follow him. J.C. Ryle said, as the soldier follows his general, as the servant follows his master, as the scholar follows his teacher, as the sheep follows its shepherd, just so ought the professing Christian to follow Christ. Faith and obedience are the leading marks of real followers and will always be seen in true believing Christians. We follow Jesus in a life of cross-bearing self-denial. We follow him in a life of service to God and man. We follow Jesus by holding fast the doctrines of his word and pursuing a holy life through the power of his Holy Spirit. So we die to ourselves. We die to sin. But I, I want to point something out here because Jesus gives this amazing promise. I don't know if you caught it. But Jesus gives this amazing promise in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is our encouragement and our promise in Christ. That anywhere Jesus is, there his servant will also be. Or will be also. Those who serve Christ can be assured of his presence in their lives. That he is right there with us. The good shepherd watches over his sheep. He speaks to us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And we have this promise that where he is, we will be also. In eternity, he will be in heaven. And his servants will be there also. It's an incredible encouragement. And I don't want us to walk away without understanding that because we talk about suffering and we talk about death but that's not the end because the end is that we get Jesus for eternity we must die to sin we must die to ourselves so the question for you is will you follow Jesus will you live for the glory of God when you look at the breadth of your life who are you really living for I don't mean who do you think you are living for. I mean look at how you make decisions and the actual actions you take. Who does it seem like you are trying to please? Who are you truly worshiping? Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping yourself with your life? And will you seek to live out the principles of the kingdom of God instead of creating your own little kingdom curated by you to make you happy and comfortable because that's what we tend to do. And lastly, will you truly believe that God loves you? He gave his son. What more could he give to make you believe and accept that he loves you, even while you're a sinner, that Christ died for you? Will you believe? Will you believe the good news of the gospel and repent of your sin this morning? 
I challenge you that to do that. I call you to repent and believe the good news. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a final closing song. Um, you know, this is the time, we call this the time of response. We don't do it like old school where I have you come forward and I stand up here and stare at you or anything like that. Um, but, but this is a time where your heart is going to respond to the word that you've heard. And so some of you, you know in your hearts right now, God's been moving and you're like, I know this is how I need to respond. And this is your time to respond to God. You're not responding to me, you're responding to Jesus. And, um, and if you want to talk about that afterwards, I'd be happy to talk about that with you. There are other people in here, like there's nothing really special about me. I just got to say, there's really not. Um, if you are a believer in Christ, then you have a ministry to those around you as well. And so if you want to know, you got something you're dealing with, you can come talk to me. Absolutely happy to. You can also turn and talk to the person you came to church with or the person in front of you or behind you or beside you. Um, but this is your time to make, make a decision, a response to what you've heard this morning. Maybe God has pointed out sin in your life and you need to just repent. Um, this is your time for that. Um, maybe you just you're enthralled with the promises of God this morning. You just need to respond by worshiping and singing and, and lifting your arms and worship, whatever. Um, maybe it is that you need to seek someone to pray with you after service. We, a lot of people around here would love to pray with you. I'd be happy to pray with you. Whatever it is, however you need to respond, this is your time uh, to respond to the Lord this morning. Let me, uh, let me pray and then we'll sing. God, thank you so much for this day. For this day, not just where we were given life, which is incredible in and of itself, but this day when we can gather and hear your word proclaimed and worship your name, Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you. As you move in our hearts, help us to respond faithfully. When you call us to repent, let us be quick to bow our knee to you, Jesus. Help us see our sin and bring us that gift of repentance. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.